This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to a special one-off podcast where we're going to talk about a newish feature series we've been running on Eurogamer in which we're taking some big topics, big pieces and really diving into them, really taking our time to do it right. I'm Bertie, an associate editor at Eurogamer and today I'm joined by Ed Nightingale who's deputy news editor to talk about this. Hi Ed. Hi Bertie, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So I'm talking to Ed because Ed wrote the first of these on character creators and I have just written the second of these on video game maps, well maps in general, and we wanted to talk about well, the piece itself and then the process of doing it, what it's like and what we hope maybe it means to you to read them. So I'm going to kick off just by giving people an overview of the piece I've written about maps. And I'm excited about this because I haven't heard this yet. So I want to know what you've been up to. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> so, um, so I have always, like many people, I'm sure, been drawn to maps. I can barely walk past one without having my head turned and looking at it and kind of being pulled into it. And I've always wondered a bit about why that is. You know, it happened to me notably with fantasy books that I'm sure lots of people read you know the most famous being the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit but beyond that almost every fantasy book seems to come with some kind of map at the beginning and then that extended into video games um, and their maps and you can think right back through the lineage of many famous fantasy role-playing series Final Fantasy actually being a huge one and they have come with some incredible maps for as long as I can remember. And thinking about maps there, forward now and backwards to Dungeons and Dragons and the importance maps have played there and continue to play there. And thinking about all of this, even games that have maps that aren't, you know, that aren't fantasy, shooters, things like this, thinking about all of this and thinking, what is it about maps? Why are we so drawn to them and has our relationship to maps changed over the years has it gotten we use maps in very different ways these days you know we look at maps on our phones a lot and that's is a massive change that has just happened and we're that we're okay with because we're a part of this change but how has that changed our relationship with maps games technologically speaking their capabilities have changed massively over the years so has that affected our relationship to map. So I wanted to 
investigate all of this this big topic a seemingly small topic but it's a big it's huge there are so many questions i mean even just there there are so many questions and like i've got questions i'm like oh i want to know if you've answered that um you know far away what what do you want to know well i mean it's it's interesting you talk about our relationship with maps because i feel like do we now rely on maps more than we used to back in back in previous days you know i I think now we tend to have a mini map in the corner and you're sort of constantly checking where you're going in a game because it's so much more complex. Yeah, The topography is more complex. And so you need that guidance more than you would have done previously. Absolutely. So this is a a huge part of it. And it mirrors the real world a bit, I think probably in more ways than we realise. As once upon a time, maps came in boxes uh you know we'd buy a big game box and there'd be a map in there and a manual and this was great for all sorts of reasons you know we could look at the map before we played the game and sort of imagine what what might happen in the game but we could also look at the map in a sense of it teasing a larger world to us which the game itself wasn't probably capable of drawing or rendering um, which of course is different these days we don't get maps in boxes partly because we don't have boxes but also because the maps that we do get in boxes are not the same. They're sort of decorative accompaniments. We don't actually mm. need them. Games have their own maps in them that we call upon to navigate these you know, much more intricate and kind of detailed worlds, which are, in some cases, 3D rendered before us. Um, we don't need a map to sort of fill in the imaginative blank, as it were, and kind of make us think of it we we were talking a bit before about final fantasy worlds and the original final fantasy worlds came with these large world maps in in their boxes that you could fold out and be like oh christ you know that look that looks (laughs) incredible but now now they don't and it's thinking as that's progressed and then we've gained things like mini maps and even like little dot 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 kind of wayfinding routes I'm thinking of The Witcher particularly. I'm sure yeah. games did this before The Witcher, but The Witcher is The Witcher Three is the one that really comes to my mind. The sort of walks you through the world, which is enormously, enormously useful, but it's led to a kind of feeling that a map has a function first and foremost. Mm-hmm. It's not. I remember, for instance, one of the game maps I particularly remember, and. Um, I'll test this theory on you in a second, is um, the Dark Age of Camelot map. Because I spent a lot of time in that world, um, you know, one of the first open worlds, I suppose, in games, trying to find my way around. And they only had this paper map. I'm pretty sure it didn't have an in-game world map. And so I was using this paper map to kind of navigate the world. And it was hilariously simple, in a sense. I found out while writing this piece um, that it was actually made with one of these online kind of map makers. So it was no one had actually drawn it. They hadn't hired oh, someone. Wow. They just sort of skipped that part. Um, and also because the game was separated into three realms. So you played in one of the three realms and then eventually you sort of battled the other people. Um, you could see on this map the other two realms and it always led me to thinking a bit like I did when I was at school and I would see maps of Europe and stuff like that thinking oh I wonder who lives in this big shape over here and like I wonder what I wonder what they're like and I wonder what it's going to be like when I meet them um so I remember that map partly because I just spent so much time there um gosh I can't remember where I was going with this point now <laughs> um but needless to say that th- like these things have changed and as in the real world actually maps 
were once almost works of fiction. People were, you know, imagining the world, really, because we hadn't charted. It's not like we were taking pictures of it from satellites in space. Um, even even a bird's eye view was a, was a, a strange thing to conceive of once upon a time mm -hmm. because we didn't, you know, not until hot air balloons did we really take to the sky. So thinking of everything from a top-down perspective is kind of weird. Like we didn't, that's, would it even help you navigate? Because how could you, you're like, oh, I don't know where to go uh, with this. So in the similar sense, a need to be more accurate came along because we needed to find our way as people started the age of discovery and you know we were sailing around the world trade routes became important coastlines became important accuracy became really important as all that happened fantasy and sort of fiction got elbowed out of map making um, and then maps became plans things that had to be uh, specific and actually that pervading thought has continued right up until like the 1990s i was talking to um someone who looks after antiquarian mapping at the British Library, and up oh, until wow. and up until that point, like maps were considered, you know, this super serious thing. That's they had to they had to be those things. But in recent years, I think it's as kind of geek culture and stuff has come back in has, or has come into the mainstream. The British Library, in particular, started collecting fantasy maps, being like, "Oh, these, hang on, these are <laughs> these are important things too." They're playing catch up a bit, and this was all showcased recently by them having a fantasy exhibition which featured maps, as yes. if a, like a declaration of intent and going, "Look, fantasy is important to us now." It might have been sort of, um, we might have looked down our nose at it in the past, but it's important to us now. And I feel games, you know, have done a similar thing. They had these sort of almost fictional additive imaginative maps to start with then as worlds needed maps as functional 3d wayfinding points we were like right we just have to have that and now you come to now and it looks like games are starting to play with form and function again in the same thing and a great example of this was given by tunix creator andrew shoulders who, I mean, Tunic does it itself. It kind of mm. it plays around with the map a bit uh, and makes you sort and, of... And with the instructions as well, the, you know, the instruction manual. You know, it's sort of playing with yeah. that old, old school vibe. Yeah, I mean, specifically, he was inspired by reading instruction manuals as a, as a kid and, you know, pulling them out and looking at them and going, oh, what's going to happen in this world? And, um, and the map page was a huge part of this. He'd look at it and he talked about it as being a cornucopia of um like kind of stories in a sense you see all these little like this cave over here or this little town over here and you can't help it your mind goes there you know it's pulled into these little places and imagine starts imagining things that are happening um there but he used so his game does it but he used this great example and i love this example for a few re reasons uh, he used elden ring as an example because it has a, a, a well, it's the first Souls game to have a map, which in in and of yep. itself is a remarkable thing. But and so I think people think, oh, okay, it's got a, it's got a map. I'll just use it to uh, you know accurately get me around, just like I do in other games. Um, and I'll come back to that point. It's also gorgeous to me. It looks a bit like a quilt, um, mm. but it's got this lovely look. So it's got that like, hand drawn sort of feel. Yeah. To it. Mm. Art is like a key part of it. It's not just like function. 
here it is. Um, but he was talking as it, as the map being a bit of an unreliable narrator in a way, because it shows you things from a perspective where things are concealed. Like sometimes you don't know what's under it. Um, and the, the world it represents is smaller than the actual world in the game, he was saying, and some bits are missing. Um, and then, yeah, it's also obscuring things. So it's, it is giving you a map, but it's also playing around a bit with perhaps our current dependency on maps. And it's made it, as a result, a kind of a slight puzzle, something you have to, he likes the word cognitive exercise uh, or words <laughs> cognitive exercise um, as maps being like an exciting tool again, something that's noticeable in a game rather than something that's just given, given and expected, I suppose. Um, I guess so, you, in that game, especially, you have to literally piece the map together as you, you find specific points and then it unlocks that area. So it, it's not just this massive map that's all in one thing. You know, you have to actually piece it together and, and understand it. And as you said, bits of it sort of get unlocked over time. Uh, and when you when you find things, they get added to the map. So it's almost like you're you're creating it yourself in a sense. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's it's a fascinating example of what people can do when they start looking at maps as an interesting additive element to the game rather than sort of a necessary wayfinding tool like what if we actually bring the map into the gameplay a little bit again a bit like mm. how maps once were an in inherent part of our gameplay when we had to refer to them because we we didn't have a choice um that kind of thing uh so that was that to me was a sort of fascinating part of the kind of technological advancement of maps in games. I spoke to, there's a guy called Damien Mamaliti. One of the things in this piece is that I, I spoke to about, I think it was 10 different like people um, for this. And you only have so much space in, in a piece and it's very yeah. difficult to, um, it's very difficult to introduce lots. Of, well, it's not difficult, but it's not wise to introduce lots of different voices because it starts to confuse the reader a bit. And they're like, mm. oh, well, God, who's this? What? I, I don't know. Like, what, what did they do? So I've got all this stuff um, that's kind of unused. And I'll ask you about this, actually, in a second. But Damien Mamaliti was the person who drew the map that came inside the Witcher 3 box, which is this wonderful. To me, it's all like made up of swirls. Um, but it's this wonderful painterly map. Um, oh, God, I can't remember what I was going to say about him now. Um, but uh, one, an interesting thing he said was that he thinks of maps as caricatures, of like as having to almost like caricature a place to get their most interesting points across. I've remembered it. He is working with um, a game studio now who was also, he's, he couldn't tell me who it was, but he said it's like a AAA blockbuster title. And they are specifically trying to marry form and function again. Um, and he talked about this map being a kind of watercolor map. Again, one that fills in as you sort of find different areas. So almost like, I guess you're bringing a, a painting together. Um, mm. But it suggests perhaps that big game companies are thinking of maps as interesting, um, interesting things that they can do. So, actually, I also spoke to the I also spoke to the person who did the Baldur's Gate three map, um, 
a Frenchman called Marc Moreau. And the map he drew is the, the map that you get in the collector's edition of Baldur's Gate 3. He thought originally it was going to be in Baldur's Gate 3. And there was maybe a case that it was in the Steam early access version. It was going to kind of, when you walked off, like, say, the end of Act 1, one of those routes, it was going to then tease to you what was coming in Act 2 uh, and 3, okay. which wasn't known really at the time. I mean, it was outlined, but not sort of detailed at the time. Um, and I'm not sure if that made it into the Steam early access build or not, but he, yeah, he wasn't aware that it wasn't going to be in the game until the game. He's not kind of sore about that point, but um, yeah, it's it's interesting. So many people um, mm. and trying to find a singular kind of thread uh, through the piece is tricky. I, in the end, went for um, a thread that's quite important to me and my gaming tastes, which is the creation of the Dragon Age world. Uh, right. So I spoke to David Gader, who was the person tasked with... Uh, think about this now, and it's an incredible responsibility. He was the person tasked with dreaming up the Dragon Age world. It's like, go go away, please, David, and create this franchise World, where please. do you where do you start with that? I mean, do you start oh, with characters? Do you start with a map? Do you start with just general lore ideas? Like, wh- where do you even begin? That's such a huge undertaking. Well, um, appropriately, he <laughs> began with a map, um, and he was given specifically a historical atlas of Europe um, with which to kind of help help conjure the world. He worked with someone called James Olin, who was another key designer on Dragon Age, and. Um, he gave David a map, that a historical atlas. But he gave this atlas to David because David had, growing up, had been surrounded by like an encyclopedia of, um, again, of maps, historical maps, because his parents brought him like a collection of maps for the year he was born in 1971. Um, That's like such a, a lovely idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like a stamp in time to be like, this is this is the year you were born. And so he grew up reading those and his, history and maps were kind of two things. He's a massive Crusader Kings player now. He's got like 1,300 hours in uh, Crusader wow. Kings 2 and like 800 hours in Crusader Kings 3. So the under like that's that like to him is the perfect game of like history and maps. Um, so understandably, when he sat down to create uh, Dragon Age, he needed a map and and in fact he didn't sketch one map he sketched a series of them uh, or he drew one and then photocopied it a number of times and then started basically doing different lines to show like a, a spread of um empires and basically drew himself an encyclopedia of, of maps uh to create the world and those sketches actually he kindly shared um and are in the piece that, wow um, that's incredible people can see now the the, the first bit, the first marks of Dragon Age on paper. It's, it's so strange because now uh, researching this piece, I bought, <laughs> finally, years later, um, I bought, there is a Dragon Age encyclopedia now. It's called yeah. The World of Thedas, and, or Thedas, um, and it comes in, there are two books, and they're really gorgeous things, actually, and filled with art and lore and all this kind of stuff. I think they had a world Bible on the writing team when they were making the game, which is just this chunk of lore. Um, 
which the writers were cool with, but <laughs> apparently trying to get programmers and artists to read things is uh, is a separate challenge because they, they just, they see things in a different way. You know, they respond to stuff in a different way. Um, so they've sort of formalized this into an encyclopedia. And of course it's got maps in as well. And it feels so like- I've got books behind me that are like, Final Fantasy, and I've got a Tolkien encyclopedia somewhere that's got all the maps of the world and stuff in yeah. it. Like, I love those kinds of books. Yeah. So let, um, let me ask you. Actually, I said I'd test the theory on you earlier. So I was speaking to um, Games Industry Database's uh, Chris String earlier um, in the office, and uh, I mentioned maps, and he instantly told me like what his favourite map was. I think it was Ocarina of Time. He's got it like framed on a wall or something somewhere. Um, but if I said to you, like video game maps or maps in general, what are the maps that kind of fly into your head almost without thinking? Um, there's a couple. I mean, I think as a recent example, you've already mentioned Elden Ring. And I think that is a really, really interesting recent example. I think a couple of others that that spring to mind for me. One is probably Link's Awakening. Mm. And I think that's because that game is literally created with uh, like of squares, <laughs> which collectively give you that map overall. So the map is essentially literally just the world if you if you zoomed out, but it's already divided up into very neat squares. And I feel like in my head, like even now, I'm like, yep, you start over here, and then you work your way around, and I can sort of navigate my way around it in my head just because those squares are so clear. Yeah. Um, and sort of knowing how it's all laid out. I think another one is, and it's it's barely a map, to be honest, um, would be Sonic on the Master ah, System. Ah, interesting. Because, so Sonic on the Master System came after the original Mega Drive one, and they sort of created this, this world map that you see in the level screens. Um, so, because otherwise it's just if you think of Sonic, it's just a series of zones that you go to and you're never really clear how they connect. But in that game, they have this this actual sort of world map and each zone, you sort of move around that map. So it's not a map in the sort of normal sense, but it's the sort of image of what the world is and you can see each zone as you work around. And for me as a kid, that really helped to give context to the levels that I was playing. You know, it wasn't just these disparate levels of you know, jungle zone and bridge zone and whatever else. It was like, I could see them connecting. And that really inspired me. Like I loved Sonic as a kid. I sat writing stories about Sonic oh, and Tails. fan and, fiction. Yeah. And like drawing pictures of them all the time. And, and I think the map in that game really just helped to give context and helped to give a sense of place. And I think yeah. that's something that maps can do really well, especially when you look back at those earlier games where they are very level based those levels can be very distinct, but a map can really help to bring the world together into one place. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating point, actually, and something that I don't really talk about, well, I don't talk about in the article, but that was a massive thing, is a lot of games from those eras didn't, of course, come with maps, um, although there's some famous examples in Super Mario Brothers, particularly when you started mm. to have the exploration map and it started to link together all those things. That's a, a really powerful example but people then um and there's a website that tracks this i think it's v videogamemaps.com or vgmaps.com something like that and <laughs> uh, yeah but it is people it's the community um compiling effectively maps of, of it might just be a level um, but it might be like an entire game and and 
they're mapping the world where the game hasn't done that uh, for them. So it's this, and it speaks to this desire for us to be able to place ourselves in a world, I think, which I think is where our, uh, like an instinctive fundamental desire in mapping our world or another world has come from and, and, and will continue to be. I think you can see this wherever, you know, in, in these funky old biblical maps that people drew, which are like sort of our world or as, as much as they knew it, but also sort of interwoven with like the Garden of Eden or um, like people with no heads because did that, did they exist? Um, but like that, they, they, that was what, that was what, was important to people at the time, which is another key thing. Like maps have always had a use. Um, that's kind of what makes them a, a map, really. They had to have mm. a use of some kind. And their use was often they determined by a sort of agenda or, or, or ties into an agenda behind the map. And so there's always one of the big points I sort of land the piece on is that there's always a map shows a perspective. There's always a different perspective behind a map, you know, whether that's a literal perspective, as in like going up in the, the air to look down. Maps didn't always do that. Or whether it just shows you the perspective of how people understood the world at the time or, you know, or what they wanted from it. It, it. There's always something going on in maps. It's sort of as you can feel the thought behind them, mm. um, which I think is which I think is interesting. Is there anything in the piece as well around maps in terms of level design? Because I guess if you think of like, how do you, and maybe with Gaida, you know, creating a world, like is that based on a loose map of Europe and to make it seem topographically realistic? Or ah. do you sort of just sort of put some splurges down and think, right, okay, how do I link that? Like, how do you literally designed the shape of the map <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> isn't it when you go right back to the fundamentals you're like where does the world begin it's yeah. the power the godly power in a, a pen just hitting the paper and drawing a line that line yeah. suddenly what that could be anything that could be is that the coastline is that a continent you know what what is that you're literally drawing you know landscapes into into a reality of some kind mm. um I was fascinated actually to discover talking to a bunch of map makers. There's um, a chap who is the most prominent map, ma map maker I could find on TikTok actually, and is, is big on um, Instagram as well. His name there, or the account there, is Dungeon Master's Diary, and uh, okay. he's called uh, Cody. And he draws directly with pen on paper in a sort of deceptively simple way, and it's quite. <laughs> quietly thrilling because you're like oh that's so risky you're just you know what if you make a <laughs> what if you make a wrong a wrong mark and i think that's part of the um the desire funnily enough as well he wasn't he he shared his sort of journey on uh tiktok so he kind of started in 2018 he had a little bit of background in sort of draftsmanship but um so he shared that in so he's kind of gotten better quite notably over time but when he's drawing he might start with a mountain um and in his head what you don't see and perhaps underneath the paper is that he is viewing he has this knowledge and so do many others actually of um i'm not really sure what you call it topography geography um earth science whatever but 
he's thinking underneath the ground like tectonic and plate levels and all this mm. kind of stuff so if he puts a mountain there he's like well if it's on its own it's a volcano um and he's like well if it's a volcano it's got to be um on this like a fault line here because you know there's got to be a gap where this comes so he's like well it's, this that will probably mean that this follows after and if i've got you know if it's a mountain range then you know probably there you know there might be some streams and stuff running off this and maybe it's going to form into a river and then the river's going to move like this so it's like a chain reaction of geo geographic logic that's kind of happening so even though it looks like he's just putting kind of bits down uh willy-nilly he's not like it's all building and then he just sort of builds this map um on kind of composite it's a composite for these kind of different things that he's thinking and many others i spoke to the lady uh devon rue who is the critical role mapper and ah. she was like the same thing for her it starts with fault lines and tectonic plates and stuff like that she's all the stuff you can't see but which yeah. informs an actual proper logical sense of the world although they are also quick to sort of acknowledge that you know, they they realize they're drawing fantasy worlds. So, you know, you, you might have something completely, well, literally out of this world um, on the map as well, and that's okay. But for a lot of them, it's all grounded and rooted in um, scientific reality. Um, but a lot of them, others start big, start with shapes. Um, so probably continent shapes the other thing to remember drawing a map is that worlds are massive hmm. um and it's something that irks me a little bit in fantasy i, I think sometimes i'm thinking of george R. R. martin's uh world um so you've got the westeros continent uh continent then you've got the um essos continent uh, and and then something <laughs> like something somewhere because i feel people sort of set out this why you see so many islands because islands are like this perfect thing because you're like i like it can just exist somewhere you can be like i'll just i've made fiji or something and it's like <laughs> it's fine i don't need to draw you know the rest of the pacific um you know or all these all this stuff around it i, I think when people go to lay down a continent they start or even just a, a land a region they start to realize like how big these places are, you know, and how much actual detail um, is in them. It's one of the things, uh, so the Dragon Age, like you talk about the Dragon Age world, similarly to like the Witcher world, it's just even the Sword Coast kind of Forgotten Realms area, it's not a world, it's, it, it's barely a continent. It's like a part of it. You know, a lot of people are drawing kind of Europe, but not even, you know, even Europe is big. You know, if you go down to it, if you get up close a bit, you're like, oh, sh holy shit, this is a lot of detail, actually. Um, so, yeah, I think. Yeah, go on. You were going to ask. Something. I was going to say, like, and also, do you only want to create a small part of the world so that there's room for it to grow? You know, if it becomes a franchise and you you want to explore other worlds yeah. in this world, you know, other continents, where where do they fit in the map? Um, you know, is this when you're drawing a map? I guess when we see it, it's a it's a two D sort of just block of a square. But are you thinking of that as a globe? um yeah well you know, this is, and in which case is this the complete world or is there more you know you mentioned final fantasy earlier i'm pretty sure 
maybe, maybe all of them, if not most of them, when you go up the top, you come back up the bottom and left and right as well. <laughs> so it gives you that sense like that... Pac-Man. Yeah. So it gives you that sense that it's a globe, but it's actually just a flat square. <laughs> yeah. Like, like our world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's true, right? How many how many creators really think of you know we, we we talk about world maps but if we're not talking about a world map um because you know i don't think any of them have come close to being a world um mm. maybe far from, i'm sure I'm thinking of world of warcraft but it had two continents you know loosely i suppose like america and then europe or or, or maybe america and africa it was that sort of then it sort of gained more but even so you don't get a sense of it as like a a whole thing i think that's why we talk about technological advancement actually there's a couple of things here but one of them is um i i come back to we talk about function being maybe a little bit cold and sterile but look at something like flight simulator and look at how exciting it is in that game to see all the real world data from mm. something like maps piped in and suddenly, you know, this uh, a measurable level of detail that you could, it would take years for creators to kind of, you know, come up with. And suddenly you're flying around the world and look at the power that has over bystanders who come and see and suddenly like, oh, oh my God, I can go to, I can fly away on this holiday I once went on. Or if you're my partner, for instance, who lives in a, a small, well, quite a large town actually in bulgaria but it's not a town that's been mapped in video games before because it's not london or paris or new york or you know something massive like one of these um famous cities and being able to fly there and go how oh, this is that road that i've gotten on a bus on and it's taken me along that's really exciting uh, kind of use of technology on the other hand ai is a scary um use of technology which they are all you know unequivocal unequivocal i can't say the word they don't like. unequivocally unequivocally um they don't <laughs> like and it's not so much that there's a few different things to talk about with ai i think um like is it actually ai to start with um but they obviously they are all completely against theft which is effectively what part of it is you know at the moment um and it's interesting they talk about you know feeling really vulnerable to this because they're all freelancers effectively you know they're not represented by a union in the same way you might know about this actually the same way the music industry is um and it's the you know you don't see i don't think you don't see people's songs being scraped in the same way uh by ai in the music industry and it being put out because um there's a bit more it would probably be dangerous but um in in a litigation sense but mm. in you know the uh, who's going to stick up for one of these map makers uh, they're just sort of a little yeah. bit just at all these artists who are, you know often are working on their own so if they're lucky you know they're they're on a team somewhere but um it's yeah, and frightening, and and obviously none of them are up for their stuff being stolen and used without you know you. It's like it's a no-brainer. The other side of it is uh, programs that are out there that let you kind of shortcut the work and um, you know kind of will populate a world for you that like tools effectively, hmm. uh, and that's slightly different. But still, I think um, 
yeah it i still i think that what's really nice and what i've learned a lot about a thought that really occurred to me during the writing of this was that maps i think appeal to us and things appeal to us because we can sort of feel the thought behind them in some cases we kind of connect to the human thought that's gone into them there's this wonderful um map maker called mike schley who's done loads of D stuff if you played a D campaign in the last 10 years probably longer um you've seen some of his work it, his he often he does very zoomed in things like some of the sort of encounter maps you know even interiors of building in buildings and they're top down and accurate but he also manages to kind of imbue a sort of warmth um and personality there as well that sort of sucks you in so he kind of manages to occupy a middle ground um and he talks about when he's making maps you know he'll work big to small like others do as well you know laying down the big shapes and then and then he gets up close for the like the the minutiae which is his favorite part and he talks about almost discovering a map like he's walking around in it in his mind's eye and like mm. trampling the grass between a building and kind of seeing these details and i think that's the the special thing that we i feel like it might be a romantic view but i feel like that's the stuff that really speaks to us and um coincidentally the stuff that is probably missing from an ai piece there's because there's no creative thought involved there's no yeah yeah i talked to um a guy called constantis demopolis uh demopolis who um he doesn't feature anywhere in the piece actually because it's like a whole separate thought he is an urban uh well city kind of designer and he helps people design cities and games and we had some fascinating conversations about uh that kind of thing but he talked about the feeling of walking around a city and maybe sitting in a public space um or or you know visiting some of the the architecture the impressive architecture and just relishing the kind of thought that's gone into it like someone's designed that especially for you to enjoy you know to be enjoyed by humans and i think mm. that's a real palpable feeling that you can get um yeah in the real world and i think you can also relate to in maps and i also found it fascinating um my partner was using or we were thinking around with this this tool this map making tool called canvas of kings which is really pretty it makes these like very parchmenty kind of um maps and she said this wonderful thing she was laying down some stuff and making a little forested area and then she was putting some birds down in the map um and all of a sudden she said oh um it, she's like oh i'm putting them there because i think something scared them and i just i loved this remark because i was like she, it's instinctive she couldn't help but give the map a story and make mm. a story like a, give something a story justification because what she was doing and i think it's the same you know for any of us when we do something like that this sounds like a really really fascinating topic <laughs> and one of those topics really boring that's... now when you read no no, no. <laughs> but it's also one of those things where you have a tiny thought and then it suddenly you realize how much work goes into something like creating a map and how much depth there is to it and then you're like how do i put this in a piece because there's just so much to it um yeah, yeah. which is, is is sort of something that i end up kind of realizing in the piece which is that there are it, there's no central one 
answer well this sort of is i do come away with like a takeaway which is this perspectives you know maps show us perspectives that um and someone's perspective is as much like we said earlier as much about them and their view on the world um and i think inherently we find that interesting how people other people see things and other people view things but you're right this was a piece that other pieces i i think that i've done have typically maybe told the story of one person or maybe i've had a few different speakers in the piece but i've never had 10 different speakers maybe 11 if you count the british library duo it was two people at once um and so i've also i was sort of exploring the topic as i was kind of researching and interviewing it so i didn't when i started i didn't know where i would end it wasn't mm. like i was meeting someone just saying i want to tell your story which is is easy you know you just follow the story of someone's life in a sense and maybe veer off here and there a little bit um so i was trying to find this and yeah it took um it took a lot of work <laughs> to do i mean just so people have uh an idea of the work i'm like so there were 10 different people to speak to which involves preparation for each of those interviews which is working out what you want to talk to them about what you want to ask them about and also arranging them in the first place which which can take a bit of to and fro oh um, yes yeah and then <laughs> and then there's the time you know talking to them i talk to them all for roughly an hour sometimes a bit more sometimes less um and then once you've got that um recording it's then needs transcribing um in varying sort of levels of detail but i like to have it in uh or i like to have it as you know usable as possible i don't want to yeah. go back and sort of do stuff afterwards um so there's that and then there's the there's the working out what you want the piece to be and the actual kind of writing of it i don't know where so i was i think i was writing this for about almost two solid weeks i think um which is an incredibly it's an incredible luxury and a big shout out to um christian donlan and the rest of the you know the sort of eurogamer editorial kind of uh higher ups as it were for uh, like for pushing this as a sort of focus on the site um and for allowing people that kind of time because it is a, you know is a luxury it's it? very time consuming <laughs> yeah very i think it took me similarly like two or three weeks to do it and then it's like oh well now this edits so and now i need to go back to it again and you th sort of think you're done with it and you're like oh no there's still more to do uh so yeah it is very time consuming but you need that time and space to as you say to sort of get get your thoughts down because there are so many things that you're thinking that's interesting that's interesting and how do you condense that into something that is actually yeah, readable so for people so you did um you were looking at character creators and i think through the lens of sort of diversity mm -hmm. um so did did what your and i know I, you know i know that there were some um edits um that happened i know that i don't know how i don't know if it was rewritten or anything like that i mean did did the piece change from what you sort of initially thought it was even in the writing like how much kind of how much changed there was there was a fairly big edit, which I think comes back to that point I was just saying of there's so much that you want to put in. I think I wrote about 11,000 words the first time and was <laughs> like, this 9, needs to be 000. chopped in half. <laughs> and it's like, you're so excited to put everything in. You're like, no, 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 I need to find the story in this. 
yeah. um, and sort of find that that thread that takes people through it. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's time consuming, but I think it all comes down to having a sort of central question that you want to ask mm. and trying to find the answer to that and also allowing yourself to be surprised by that answer. Because for me, I sort of had this idea of what does the ultimate character creator look like? Uh, which is an incredibly broad and massive, massive question because we're nowhere close to that yet. And my thinking was, okay, well, what what diversity and representation questions are in that? What technical advancements do we need to create this tool that can do everything that you want? And I sort of realized that actually that's not what it's about at all, <laughs> which was a nice surprise to get to that point. But I realized that a character creator is a sort of gateway between the player and the player being able to represent themselves, but also how the player interacts with a world. And so the character creator has to serve the world that it's that it's linked mm. to as much as it does the player. So, you know, something like cyberpunk is going to have sort of cybernetics and things that you can fuse to your character, which is not something you're going to find in Baldur's Gate, for instance. So there are going to be specific things that allow you to to interact with that world or again with cyberpunk it's like you're not just creating any old character it's you are creating v and there is a yeah. specific story that v is v is involved with so what is your interpretation of who v is are you playing you as you why, or, or as yourself you can see why some games opt for the pre-written character <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's just sometimes easier, I guess, to have that specific narrative. So it's that real balance between like player expression and the narrative of the world. And once that clicked for me, I realized, okay, this piece is not quite what I thought it was going to be when I first started. There's an amount of of bravery as well and, and kind of nerve in that because the pieces, there's, there's, there's a point when I find when you're, when you're faced with... Um, you know, you go out and you gather lots of information. I was reading this wonderful book at the same time called The Writer's Map. Um, I think that's what it's called. And it's it's filled with various authors um, and other people, um, some explorers and people like that, um, talking about maps and often used in their process uh, and how, you know, how they came across it. And it's filled with wonderful, loads more wonderful comments and things. But just, you know, I'd already had all these wonderful comments. And at one point you sort of there and imagine like, one of those like diagrams around your head or one of those things and or showing all this information and you're in the you're kind of standing in the middle of it like how am I gonna pull all this into into one piece um, and it's not you know one of the transcriptions could easily be 10,000 words and you're like mm. how am I gonna fit this in it's 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 been an interesting challenge for sure um you have to be ruthless that, yes yes it's interesting what you said about character creators actually being um, like a almost fell over there um, being like a, a a sort of portal into their world because people talked about maps being like that as well. As yeah, exactly. A kind of you know a character creator is is more than a a tool. It's a way of sort of underlining the fantasy of the world before you begin on it. Like take Baldur's Gates one for instance you know it's often the first thing you encounter in a game so it needs to uh, you know yes you know you obviously want yourself well or you want your character your 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 game's identity to 
you know to see you and um represent you in as whichever ways you know you, you want it to do that but at the same time it needs to kind of pull you into the fantasy as well you know mm. uh, which is super exciting as well are you I don't now... know what the next one is but are we going to find that that's also a portal and then maybe like this whole yeah. series is just like portals is like portals. The, the name of it <laughs> um portals into games so given all of that um transcription and stuff that, that inevitably doesn't doesn't fit and you have to kind of filter to get the bits you know that, that support the thread that mm-hmm. you're making through your piece are you now left with um a pile of things um that you haven't used and that you want to use um I don't know how much of it would be usable. It's probably like little snippets of things that you're like, oh, that was a really interesting point, but it just didn't quite fit the argument um, that was needed. So there's probably, I mean, I can't think off the top of my head, but there are probably lots and lots of little bits from each each interview. Um, You know, there are some interviews that I was only able to use a couple of quotes from and the rest of the stuff was interesting, but often you get, multiple people making very very similar points and that's the point where you have to be ruthless of like well who said Mm. it in the most interesting way um or the most succinct way that makes for a nice quote and everybody else i'm really sorry you made great points but i just don't have the space um so yeah there's probably lots of little love cuts i don't think there's anything that on its own would necessarily um stand up i mean there were entire sections of my, my piece i thought that could be a piece in itself and do i put it in do i not um and i wanted to keep it as i wanted to keep everything in as much as i could but yeah i'm sure there are various offcuts and i'm sure you've got tons of stuff from yours as well yeah i mean notably uh, there was a wonderful bit i was talking to david gader and he i think he has said this before but i'm not sure in how much detail but he talked about how he wanted to kill there's a character called varick um in dragon age which people will be super familiar he's the dwarf right yeah Um, and became a mate and he desperately wanted to kill varick off at the end of dragon age 2 um and because he's like it it needed he was the unreliable narrator of the game at the beginning and he was like it needed to end with his death um and it didn't for some reason and then he was going to do it in an expansion for dragon age 2 but the expansion got canned um because he then wanted to uh uh they wanted to use that time to work on uh, inquisition dragon age 3 and then he was desperate to do it in three. And they're just like, <laughs> chill out. Just stop trying to kill this character. Why do um, you hate Varric? <laughs> but he was, yeah, I don't think he hates it. But it's interesting now because Varric's probably going to pop up in, oh, God, I'm trying to think what happened to him in the Inquisition. I think he's still alive. Um, I think so, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he might now pop up in Dragon Age 4. And uh, it, that was another point which was interesting talking to David Gader about. So he left... Um, Bioware a while ago now I can't remember the exact year 2017 or so like it was uh, he's been away for uh, like a number of years maybe 2016 and he had nothing to do with Dragon Age 4 uh, it hasn't touched it at all so so now he is awaiting Dragon Age 4 like the rest of us mm. um, and yet it's not quite like the rest of us because he created the world and he created so many of these characters. That must be the weirdest feeling. Like I created yeah. this and now someone else is completely in charge of that. And it was happening over the time that he was there. You know, he would say, you know, with every game, with every imagining of 
the world it got firmer and firmer you know more tangible and more, well i mean you could literally touch it in the game you could stand in it and walk around in it um and people would join the team who had played it and, and knew these worlds knew these characters you know that had once come from his head and his you know his team then would collectively fill out the history because you know he's like i'm just i'm just one guy you know i he sort of made a start and then it got filled in but now yeah what an odd feeling he and he's not sure he's not sure if he can play the game like he's not sure if he'll mm. be able to because he's like what if you know they're going to to Vinter in the game um which is where dorian comes from and dorian is this like hugely important character to david gader um he created him you know he's the first um I think specifically gay character in the in the series there was a you know there's lots of reasons he was a wonderful character as well and he's like what if what if they use Dor- what if they what if dorian's in it you know what what does he do then and he behaves in a certain he's like i created him that's like my uh you know he's like my guy and you're using him in a different way so yeah that's a that's a fascinating thing but then you know you if you were to look at Tolkien and we're Tolkien alive now you know what would he think about Peter Jackson's films yeah what I mean what would he think about the Amazon series you know um but you have living examples of this too you have George R. R. Martin in the Game of Thrones series that he created and, and sort of handed over you had have Andrei Sapkowski and the Witcher series um which has obviously been taken into games famously and also onto um, a Netflix series and mm-hmm. these kind of things that by it's this odd sort of paradox but by, by their own definition they want the success for these worlds but in having the success they sort of have to hand them over to other creatives to kind of so they in the same in the same way David did you know slightly different thing but had to hand it over you know it was always going to be made by a, um, a bigger team um, and it's interesting with these other creations as well. There's always an element of that. And also with the communities that play them. One of the things that really struck me in the fantasy exhibition was how they had um, a section for fan fiction, um, which is a hugely important sort of collective underlining of these worlds and often fills in, as the people at the British Library were saying, um, some of the really important blanks in terms of uh, representation you know, inclusion, things that are lacking in these fictions, maybe initially, mm. people put themselves into them um, in that way. Um, and that, in, in, in a sense, is, is also sort of handing over to other people. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. And it, it's made me, it's made me more fascinated in maps, I think, than less. Well, that's you know, good that you're not sick of it. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I think it's amazing how variable the appeal of a map is as well, just depending just depending on who we are and our experience with that world or that thing. You know, it could be the most, it could be a really <laughs> dreary, ugly map, but because it means something to you and your life, it it could be a really important um, important thing. And it's the, the same is true of games as well. You know, it will only take sometimes just to look at that zelda a link to the past map or something and people are like oh my god it's my childhood um so yeah it's interesting so um are you keen to write another of these pieces anytime soon ed is is that 
a request or an offer? No, put you on the spot. <laughs> if if there's a topic that warrants it, absolutely. I think there are there are so many interesting topics that that warrant this kind of in depth analysis and study. So yeah, of of course, I think it's always good to be curious and to have questions. And it's it's also great to speak to the people that make these games and for us to understand more about the actual work that goes into them and the sort of creative starting points for them. That was a great answer. Um, to everyone <laughs> to everyone listening, thanks for bearing with us as we talk through this. I hope you enjoy the maps piece I've written. If you haven't read Ed's piece on character creators, um, it will be linked from my piece as well. So um, please go and read that as well. And let us know what you think as well. You know, come and comment on, on the article and um, tell us about a map that's special to you or a character creator that you that you love you know we'd love to hear from you and i'll be chit-chatting in the comments as i always do instead of doing actual work <laughs> um so uh thank you ed uh for joining me today thanks for having me it's been great oh thank you very much um i'm bertie that was ed and we will be back soon in some guys on another podcast thank you for listening bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.